So this semester, if you've been with us, you know this, we have been studying the Gospel of John together, and we've gone through the first 11 chapters of John, and we've done this with the intention of seeing Jesus. Um, John 1.18 says this, um, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so what John is saying is no one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ has made God known. So if we want to know what God is like, we're going to look at Jesus. Um, so that's what we've done together this semester. Um, as we've gone through the, the Gospel of John. And tonight we're going to read John 11 together, or parts of John 11 together. And um, we'll be looking at Jesus and death. Um, and so for the past few weeks I've been thinking about death. I've been thinking about death and our responses to it. Um, and this year has been a year filled with death, as every year is filled with death. Um, our news headlines have been filled with stories of mass shootings, stories of dead refugees... Um, some of you experienced real loss this semester. You've lost people whom you love, um, you lost family members and friends to death. And as I said a few weeks ago, it's worth repeating that our culture, our late modern secular age, gives us no framework for dealing with death, for dealing with loss, for dealing with grief. Um, so when we experience it ourselves, we often have no idea how to deal with it. Um, it seems that we often respond in one of three ways. And these are insufficient ways to deal with it. Um, The first is denial. Tim Keller says that many of us treat death with denial. Let's just not talk about death. Death is obscene. We're not going to talk about it. Um, He says this. He says, as a minister who does funerals, I've noticed something. People are really just like a bunch of prisoners in a jail who've decided that the way they're going to talk about their condition is that they have made a promise that they're never going to talk about it. Never mention that they're in jail. Never make any reference to it at all, so they won't remind each other about it. They won't remember it themselves. It's a conspiracy of silence. Let's not admit it. Let's deny it. Let's not make reference to it. But at a funeral, it's like all those prisoners are suddenly made to gather together and stare at the jail gate, at the door, at the bars of the prison. And it's tremendously embarrassing. He says the number one emotion that he feels as a pastor at funerals is embarrassment. And one writer put it this way, For society's sake, we must hide the unbearable disturbance caused by the ugliness of dying. People need to believe that life is happy. And this is the most bleak admission of despair. Um, he's saying that anyone, if anyone begins to actually admit to themselves the inevitability and the reality of death, then life will be drained of all joy. That's one way we deal with it is we deny it. Another way we deal with it is that we sentimentalize it. Um, psychologists have rightly been telling us for a number of years that if you deny something that you fear, if you fear something but you refuse to face that, what you actually do is that thing then controls you unconsciously. If you're afraid of something and refuse to face it, um, you deny it, but it still runs your life. And because of that, a lot of people then say, well, hold on. The way we're dealing with death is here is that we're afraid of it, but we act like it's not there. And so this second approach is to get rid of that problem. And it's to say, right, let's not be afraid of death. Let's face it. And let's say it's our friend. And say things like, death is natural. Death is not awful. Death is beautiful. Death is peaceful. Death is just the final stage of life. Have you heard that? Right, it's like the Bob Ross effect. Right? It's, it's these paintings um, that are lies. They're absolute lies. Like, that's not what life is like. It's um, Thomas Kincaid. These paintings are lies. They don't tell the truth about reality. Keller goes on to say this. He says, sentimentalizing death, saying that it is natural or beautiful, is a cosmetic statement that works about as well as putting lipstick and rouge on a skeleton. All it does is make it more hideous. 
So we deny death, we sentimentalize it, and the third way we deal with it is that we are constantly looking for a silver lining. Right? My aunt just died, and so the response is, well, she's in a better place. Well, I just broke my leg, and the response is, well, now you get to enjoy being still. Um, they turned off the power in my apartment. The response is, well, now you get to live simply. Right? This is an absurd way of dealing with tragedy. Um, but Christians do this too, and especially in the South. Brian Habig, um, who's a former RUF campus minister, says that when something awful happens, people will say, they'll like pull out Romans 8 as a rubber stamp and say, it, Romans 8 in it, which says, all things work together for the good of those who love them. Um, who love God, um, they walk around with this rubber stamp, stamping each other's sadness and loss. I'm sad. All things work together for good. I lost my family member. All things work together for good. This rubber stamp on people's loss. Um, grace guys are going to clear up. Just put on a happy face. Don't be sad about it. All things work for good. Rubber stamp. And the temptation with this one is just to jump over sadness and go straight to the happy ending, Right? So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to read John 11 together, a story of Jesus' encounter with death. And we'll see Jesus' presence in death and also death's response to Jesus. So if you want to read along with me, it's printed on your orange piece of paper. We're going to read John 11, 20 through 45, and then verse 53. This is the word of God um, for us, and God gives it to us in love. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in her house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So from that day on, the leaders of the Jews made plans to put him to death. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you speak to us, and we pray now that you would do that by your Spirit and show us Jesus and what he does with death. We pray in his name. Amen. So these these first verses of John 11 tell us that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, siblings who live together and are friends with Jesus, they call on Jesus because Lazarus is sick. And while Jesus is traveling to visit them, Lazarus dies. And the first thing said when Martha sees Jesus approaching, this is in verse 21, says, Jesus, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But you're here now. Ask God to bring him back. She asks our very human question. God, where were you? Where did you go? Death is present. You must therefore not be. Where are you in my suffering? Um, the problem with suffering is the number one thing people name for their lack of faith. Right? Some tragedy has touched down and torn through their lives, leaving behind a mangled mess. And our response to the carnage of suffering and death is to ask God, where were you? The rape of a friend, the death of a loved one, an act of terror at home or abroad. God, where were you? Now why? Why is this our first response? Why is this our first response? Because of the pain. It hurts. We don't want to feel it. The ache of our hearts breaking open. It hurts. And surely this pain means that God must be absent at the least, right? Um, At the best, he's absent. At worst, it means that God is cruel. But Martha doesn't stop there. Instead, her cry to Jesus is made in faith. She says, look with me at verse 21. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. So Martha takes her pain, her grief, her sadness, her loss, and she aims it at Jesus. She hands it to him. She says, here I am in this tangled knot of grief, and I trust you with myself. I trust you with my pain. And we see that Jesus is present in death. And he's present in rage, and he's present in tears. So almost two years ago, uh, my sister's husband, Andrew, died tragically and suddenly. And it felt like a bomb went off. And I was wandering around in the crater of his absence with blood streaming from my ears, unable to orient myself towards reality. And Mary has the same response to Jesus that Martha does. In verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved. This is the same phrase in both 33 and verse 44. Now, deeply moved is an adequate translation for us, but it's not quite severe enough. In Greek, it is the most intense translation. Um, of language. It's a word used in Greek literature to describe the snorts of war horses, bellowing with outrage. Brian Habig says this, he says, it's what comes out when you cannot verbalize how upset you are. When all of the emotional energy is going into how upset you are and you can't do the work of going through the vocabulary file to pick the right word. It's just you know, it's this, ugh, like this, this guttural, painful noise. And he does this at least twice. And so what is Jesus mad at? Like, is he mad at the people? Well, 
right? That wouldn't square with how he treats people. We see Jesus gets most visibly upset when he comes face to face with the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. When he encounters just how messed up the world is. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 19, when Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem, and he knows that the city is not going to receive, them at, receive him as his, their king, but rather they're going to crucify him as a criminal. The city should have received him with open arms, and instead it stonewalls him. Jesus looks at Jerusalem, and he just weeps. He loves the city, and he weeps over it. Because the world is that broken, it's that fallen, and it's going to take something cosmic to fix it. And here, right, here's a man that Jesus loved, that he, t- he spent time with. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And his death sent shockwaves through his family and through his community. And Mary and Martha just crumbled. And here is Jesus outraged at death. Outraged at sin. And he wades right into it. And then we get his tears. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. I'm not sure what your mental picture is of this. Um, for some of us, especially guys, it's tempting to think of Jesus just tearing up a little bit. Um, that's not what's happening here. This is weeping, it's sobbing, it's profusely crying. Um, now, Mary Clark has seen me tear up for things, you know, when my eyes leak a little bit, um, like watching The Biggest Loser, or, um, I don't know, I realized we cried, I cried, I don't know if you did, I cried during the floor exercises of the Olympics this year. One of the women just, yeah, right there, it was beautiful. It was so, I mean, I, I, I teared up, I mean, it was just a little tear. Um, and in the nine years of our marriage, I have only burst into tears twice. Um, the first was standing behind the animal hospital, holding the cardboard casket of my one-year-old dog that had just been put down. And the second was in the days and weeks following my brother-in-law Andrew's death. Right? When, when tears that move your chest the way that laughter does. And Jesus' rage and tears are amazing responses in light of what he's about to do. Mary and Martha have just asked identical questions. Both come to him and say the same thing. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus doesn't walk up with a smirk. He doesn't say, hey, I know you're sad right now, but this is about to be awesome. No, he's angry, and he's about to undo anger. He is Anger and rage because this is what the world is like. The world is full of death. And Jesus could have raised all of the dead people. Any dead person he would have liked to. But he didn't raise all the dead people. He raised Lazarus. And we're told that this is a sign. He's using his good friend Lazarus and his death as a sign to the church and to anyone who was there on that day. A sign pointing to the power Jesus has over all that corrupts and destroys in this life. Now, Scripture commands God's people, not just suggests, but commands God's people to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And Ephesians tells us to be angry and do not sin. Um, Wake Forest is a great place. Uh, We, um, Mary Clark and I love being here. God and his wisdom, his infinite wisdom and power has put us here, all of us here at Wake. Um, Right now, this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. Um, It's in God's wisdom that we are here together at Wake Forest. And so we need to think about what this looks like here. What does it look like to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, to be angry and do not sin here at Wake? Um, And so to do that, I want to ask you this question. 
How does Wake need our anger and sadness? How does Wake Forest need our anger and sadness? Not our denial, not our sentimentalization, not our looking for a silver lining. How does Wake need our anger and sadness? Think of your roommates. Think of your classmates. Think of the guys and girls in your fraternity or sorority, your friends, your enemies. How do they need your anger at the brokenness and sadness in their lives? And how do they need your tears? But before we can bring the presence of Christ to our neighbors by mourning with them, we must first know the presence of Christ in our own mourning. So, do you know how to mourn over the death in your own life? Do you know how to weep for your own sadness, the sadness that is unique to your own experience as a human, the unique way that sin and sorrow have shaded your own life? When Andrew, my brother-in-law, died, um, I I was terrified of my own grief. I distracted myself from it. Um, And in avoiding my own sadness, I found that I was actually avoiding God. But when I allowed the wave of grief to wash over me, to not run from it, but to experience it, I found that that was where Jesus was. He was weeping for the death in my life. Look where Jesus is in this passage. He's weeping at the tomb of his friend. And friends, the only way that you're going to have the strength and courage to weep with your neighbors and to bear the love of God into their lives is you first join Jesus in the sadness and rage over the brokenness and sorrow in your own life. And to allegorize this passage a little bit, um, Mumford and Sons do this in one of their songs, Roll away your stone, I'll roll away mine, together we'll see what we can find. Um, Lazarus was dead for four days before Jesus got there. Four days of decay. And I think we often have fear of opening up the places in us that we've got locked down, right? Those places inside of us that are locked down like a tomb because we think that those things are decaying. We know that those things are decaying and we know that they stink. But look at Jesus. He goes straight to the tomb. He heads straight for the stench of death. And there he prays for those who are with him that by this sign he's about to do, they might have faith. And so to the dark tomb, with the stone rolled away, Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Lazarus, the man who has died four days in the tomb, comes out, hands and feet bound, because that's how they um, buried people, with their hands and feet bound, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to the people, unbind him and let him go. Brian Habig points out that when Martha says in verse 27, I believe you are the Christ, that we tend to hear this as Jesus' last name, right? That Jesus is Mr. Christ. Um, But to a a Jewish person, she's saying, you are the anointed one, which means that you are the one who comes and fulfills what all the other anointed people did. You are the definitive prophet and priest and king, all in one. And I just want to take these in reverse order together. The, the king, how Jesus is the king and the priest and the prophet. Well, first the king. Um, what would be the ultimate demonstration of power? Would it be having the biggest army or the most money? The most people swearing allegiance to you? The ultimate demonstration of power would be to overturn death. Death is the enemy that no king has ever been able to overturn. And that's what Jesus does. 
Christians throughout the centuries have noticed that it's interesting that Jesus says Lazarus come out. Because if he just said come out, then everyone would have come out. Like everyone, all the dead people would have come out. But instead he aims this at his friend. And then his friend shuffles out of the grave. This is the king of kings riding out to meet death and sin and sadness. And he is out to kill. And if Jesus is able, before his own death and resurrection, simply by being the Son of God, to say, Death, you are dead. Lazarus, come to me. And a man comes to him. This means that he has all authority. And the proof is that all who saw it told everyone they knew about it. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been um, Lazarus' friend after this? You're going home to Thanksgiving. Lazarus is like, how is your semester going? And you reply, oh, it's great. Wake's going to a bowl game. Soccer team won the ACC championship. I'm passing all my classes. And he replies, oh, that's great. It reminds me of when I was dead for four days and then Jesus brought me back to life, right? Ultimate one-upper. Um, over, you know, you're talking to your friends. Over Christmas, I'm going to the BVI with my family. And then, oh, no way. We're going skiing in the Alps in France. He's like, oh, yeah, one time my body was decomposing. And, you know, here I am. Um, so everyone talked about this so much, so much, that the Jewish leaders said, we've got to kill Jesus. This is in verse 53. Um, If this keeps going on, then everyone is going to follow him. And then in chapter 12, the chief priests make plans to kill Lazarus as well. And the irony of this is that it plays right into God's hands. Christ is king, and Christ is also priest. The Old Testament priests worked with animals who had become sacrifices. Old Testament priests did not become the sacrifices. And yet Jesus Christ, the true priest, is not only the sacrificer, but the sacrifice. They planned to kill him, and they did it. And when they did it, it did things that no one could have dreamed of. It took away the sins of the world. It broke the power of sin in the lives of God's people. And 2 Timothy 1 says, Our our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolished death. Jesus is king, he is priest, and he is prophet. He's the prophet. And what do prophets do? They tell you what God wants you to hear. And did you hear what Jesus said to Martha when she came out to him? Martha says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus says this. He doesn't say, I can tell you how to find the resurrection. He doesn't say, I will teach you about the resurrection. What does he say? He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. If anyone believes in me, he won't die. He will live. Do you believe this? And this is the Gospel of John. Jesus doing signs, showing all who have eyes to see the power that he has, and then speaking words to all who have the the ears to hear. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He says this to you. He says, I am the resurrection. I am victory over the death of the body. Believe in me and your body will be raised. He says, I am the life. I am the victory over the death of the soul. Believe in me and your soul will never die. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying, um, if you are born once, you will die twice. But if you are born twice, you will only die once. If you're born once, if you come into this world as a baby, 
And that's your only birth, you will die twice. Your physical death, and then a second eternal death in the judgment. But if you're born twice, if you come into the world as a baby, and then you're born again through faith in Jesus, then you only die once. That your physical death is transformed into the gateway to eternal life. Death's response to Jesus is that it is destroyed. It's dismantled. So much so that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 can say that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he can say this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? Um, This weekend, um, a friend of mine from our church here in town, Redeemer, a man named Calvin Sy, um, he died, and he passed uh, from this life into the next. And um, Calvin had been fighting cancer for some time. He'd lived with a terminal diagnosis, I think, for the better part of a year. And um, last spring, Calvin took me to lunch. And as we talked of love and life and death, um, he had no fear. He had no fear. And sitting with him, this man who knew death was coming but also knew and believed Jesus to be the resurrection and the life, I saw life and love embodied in a man who could face his own death because his Lord had conquered it. And as we sat sat together, I read him something. And this is what I want to leave you with tonight, what I read to him. This is from St. Athanasius, who was a 4th century church father. And this is on your bulletin. Um, And I want to read this to you because this is what I saw in Calvin. This is what I saw in him. No one in his senses doubts that a snake is dead when he sees it trampled underfoot, especially when he knows how savage it used to be. Nor if he sees boys making fun of a lion does he doubt that the brute is either dead or completely bereft of strength. These things can be seen with our own eyes, and it is the same with the conquest of death. Doubt no longer then. When you see death mocked, and scorned by those who believe in Christ, that by Christ death was destroyed, and the corruption that goes with it resolved and brought to end. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that 